thank you everyone for listening to this episode of The Catalyst. Today I have a dear friend, an old friend, and one of the coolest people ever, Evan Wesley of The Thirst Project. What I really like about The Thirst Project, obviously, besides your guys' mission and statement, is actually your title. So you are VP, that is Vice President for Student Activation. And I think that title in and of itself kind of speaks a little bit to the character of the Thirst Project. Mm -hmm. So before we dive into the amazing work you guys have been doing in regards to water safety and water activism, I would love to talk about how you found yourself at the Thirst Project in the first place. Yeah, no, thanks. Uh, first, Audrey, thanks so much for having me. Uh, it's good to reconnect and chat and just share life. So uh, how I got involved with Thirst Project, how I, I found myself here, I was uh, attending the University of Kentucky. Uh, I was a junior in college. And at that point, I hadn't yet declared a major. I hadn't yet decided what I wanted to do with my life. And I knew I loved a few things. I knew I loved being outside. I knew I loved uh, you know, math and science. I knew I loved traveling and I knew I loved helping people. I loved giving back. And so I, I met a teacher who recommended a program at my university. Uh, the teacher recommended the environmental science program. And so I, I looked into the environmental science program and I found that you could choose a focus area. And one of the focuses was water resources. And so I chose environmental science, not knowing what focus I would eventually end up declaring. And then I met a friend who grew up in Africa, who was also a part of that program. And he told me crazy stories growing up. And one of the stories he continued to tell is how he would wake up early in the morning and he would walk miles to fetch water from open, unprotected water sources. And he used these words, water crisis. And, and I was loosely aware that there was a water crisis. I knew that people around the world you know, didn't have access to clean water, but I didn't know the depth of the water crisis until I met this friend. So he kind of told me his life story. I decided, man, I want to commit my life to helping give people clean water. And then my senior year, uh, Thirst Project partnered with universities all around the country trying to recruit interns. And they partnered with my university. They sent out a, a link to apply to be an intern. I got that link. I was like, man, I got to do this. I got to sign up. I signed up. I applied. I got the internship. Uh, throughout the course of my internship, when I graduated college, I got really close to Seth, the founder and CEO, and eventually he hired me to come on full time to help him build this thing and been here ever since. What I love so much about that story and just like hearing about how you found yourself in the Thirst Project is how natural it was. It wasn't something you planned out. It wasn't something you like extensively researched. You did things that spoke to your dream, that spoke to your passions, and then you just ended up at this phenomenal organization. And what I love, again, about the Thirst Project is your guys' mission. You often call yourselves the leading youth water organization. And I would love to talk about why youth. You know, like, why is that something that you guys focus on so much? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, you know, when we started 10 years ago, we were, you know, an organization that was started uh, in a pool of dozens of other water organizations that already existed. But what we found is that nobody was activating young people around the issue of the water crisis. And so why we wanted to do that is because we felt like, and we still believe this today, students are the most powerful agents of social change. And I think we've been witness to some amazing young people stepping up to end real world issues today. You know, there are young people who are climate activists who are giving presentations around the world. There are young people who are fighting for policy change related to gun control. And so we believe that if we want to change the world, and when I say we, I mean like the global community, 
And if when I say change the world, I mean solve any world issue, ending food insecurity, you know, solving world, uh, you know, they're ending the education disparity in low-income neighborhoods. If we want to solve any of these issues, it starts with young people being educated on these issues and then fighting to you know find resolutions and solutions to these issues. So uh, we want to do something different, and we also felt like if we could give young people perspective about a global issue like the water crisis at a young age that would change the trajectory of their life that would change the priorities that would change their career desires and that would change their ability to influence other people so those are some of the reasons why we felt like man young people need to be invested in and they need to understand like this the, the seriousness of the global water crisis that's incredible. I remember the first time I actually heard and learned about the Thirst Project was through Key Club International, through my extensive involvement with that public service organization. So I'm totally with you about, you know, we have to catalyze the youth. The youth are really the future. And when it comes to water activism, the Thirst Project, again, is one of the first places and realms I've really learned about water activism. And I was wondering if you could talk to us a little bit about what water activism is and what the Thirst Project is doing to really further that movement. Yeah, uh, great question. And, and I would say that water activism, you know, there's multiple tiers to water activism. I think most people in the United States, when we think of or we hear about water activism, we're thinking about things that we can do locally to conserve water or be better stewards of water as a resource. So it's things like taking shorter showers or it's things like, you know, being smart about irrigation. If we own a home and we're trying to water our front lawn or we're trying to water our plants or it's things like, you know, low flow toilets or rainwater harvesting systems, rain barrels on the side of buildings. So that's one part of it. And I think for a lot of people in the United States, that's a big and important piece. And it's related to, like I said, being a better steward of a water resource. But for us at Thirst Project, water activism actually looks like understanding the just the importance of water as a resource for all aspects of life and development. And so we know that we need water to survive. I don't think we actively think about that every day, but then our mission in terms of water activism is to educate people who don't understand the depth of the water crisis or people who don't understand the depth of not having access to clean water because they've never lived it. And I don't wanna speak and generalize for everyone in the United States, but I would say in my experience, most people that I've met They've never had to live for an extended amount of time without access to close, safe water. But the impact of living for an extended period of time without access to close, safe water, it's extreme. And so our water activism looks like educating students on just the multiple pillars of the water crisis and the different aspects of life and development that it relates to, and then getting students to use their voice and use their influence to tell other people about the issue. And then eventually activism, true activism, leads to young people doing something about it, right? Creating solutions to help give people clean water in these different countries and communities. Amazing. Could you talk a bit more about the extent of the water crisis? I know like basic statistics, like 663 million people on our planet don't have access to clean and safe drinking water currently. So could you talk a bit more about just the disparities you've seen and the statistics you've encountered through your work? 
Absolutely. Uh, you know, the water crisis, it's complex. It's not a super simple issue. Uh, and it's a global issue. And because it's a global issue, that feeds into the complexity of the issue. Most people think that the water crisis is in Africa alone, you know, sub-Saharan Africa, West Africa, but that is so far from the truth, right? We see communities that are impacted by the water crisis in Central South America, Southeast Asia, and uh, Central and Sub-Saharan Africa as well. So, I mean, the state of the water crisis currently you know it's uh, a lot better than what it was 10 years ago but we still have a long way to go so the first place we typically go for you know scope and perspective is the statistic that you just mentioned i mean still today there are hundreds of millions of people that don't have access to clean water uh, over 600 million but like what that actually looks like is every single day there are millions of women and children who are tasked with collecting water. So they have to walk miles to fetch water from open, unprotected sources, which are, you know, dirty mud puddles, swamps, rivers, streams. And these open, unprotected water sources, you know, have a host of different parasites and bacteria that cause waterborne diseases. And waterborne diseases kill about a thousand kids every single year. But these diseases are completely preventable. It's not like we don't know the cure. You know, we don't have a solution. You know, the solution is clean water. Uh, and it's not just, you know, women and children walking to fetch water. It's not just waterborne diseases. There are, you know, different deep impacts of the water crisis that change uh, people's daily lives. So kids who are missing out on the opportunity to go to school, uh, you know, kids miss hundreds of millions of hours of school every single year because they don't have access to close, safe water. So either they're walking long distances to fetch water or they're drinking contaminated water, they get sick and they're forced to miss school. Also, gender equality, you know, such a, a huge topic in 2019 all around the world. You know, gender equality is directly tied to the water crisis. So you will rarely see men walking to fetch water. And it's typically a task that's given and delegated to women. But then that forces women to walk for water instead of going to get a job to financially provide for their household. Um, and then economic opportunity, too, right? Without access to clean water, we've seen communities struggle to develop economically. Right? Women can't go and get jobs. People can't you know, start a business because they have limited access to a resource that they need to meet their physiological needs. So it's all these different layers to the water crisis. I'm like, what is the state of the water crisis today? And all those problems also are you know, solved by very different solutions. So it's not just deep borehole wells that we're building, but it's also a, a ton of different water projects that are being implemented in communities that are working, you know, that are solutions so people can get access to close, safe water. Amazing. I think every time I just think about inequality and even study it here at Harvard, it's always so multifaceted. It's never the actual issue. It's never just water, right? It's like, how does a lack of access to water impact this community on an economic level, right? How does it impact the social? You brought up the idea of like gender inequality. It affects women just as much as it affects children, just as much as it affects the overall community. And back to your point about the wells, I would love to talk to you about the actual logistics of combating the water crisis. At the Thirst Project, how exactly do you guys go into like the nitty gritty of fighting the thirst, um, the water crisis, excuse me? No, that's a great question. So we are currently active in five countries. And with every country that we work in, we have what's called a community development officer. And this community development officer is our point of contact on the ground. And they help us facilitate our work in the field. And so our community development officers are in charge of, you know, running assessments uh, in communities that currently don't have access to clean water. And they'll do these assessments and they'll take data points. And then from those assessments, we have a water technical board 
And this board is made up of five individuals who have PhDs in either civil engineering or hydrology. And this board will make decisions on where we can and cannot build projects. So once an, ass once an assessment is done, and then a community with different data points is taken to our water technical board, they will decide if we can build a project. If they say, yes, we can build a project at this community, then we will reconnect with our community development officer. And you know, with all the money that we're continuing to get from students who are doing incredible things for the water crisis, we'll take that money to fund projects. And so we'll, that, we'll wire that money to different accounts uh, for our community development officers. And then they will start the process of building a well which is a process that adheres to our standards of sustainability. And it's also got multiple parts. You know, there are different surveys that we have to do. There are different pump tests that we have to do. We have to hire and train a local water committee that are in charge of maintaining and upkeeping the water project. We have to find local contractors who will then be the drillers to drill deep into the water table to establish a well. So it's really through the coordination of our community development officer that starts the process. So finding the community in need and then through our water technical board approving that community, then it goes back to our community development officer who then facilitates the building of the well, all the tests, all the surveys we have to do, the completion of the water project, the training of the local community on the maintenance and upkeep of that project, and then the reporting after the project is done. So six months, one year, five year, 10 year reporting. Amazing. And I love how multi-leveled and like how there's different tiers to that system. Um, it seems very nuanced and it's like just checking for any irregularities that may come up. Um, I would love to talk about Swaziland. I remember during um, ICON several years ago, and ICON is the international convention for Kiko International that happens annually. And that was at that conference that I first heard about the Thirst Project. I remember at that conference, you guys talked about your campaign in Swaziland. Can you talk more about that? Yeah, uh, I would love to. It's uh, some of the most exciting part of our work. So uh, back in 2012, we as an organization, we wanted to put some more purpose behind our work in the field. We obviously are doing good work in helping give people clean water, but we wanted to figure out, I mean, how can we make greater impact in the water space? And not just the water space, actually, but just the community development space. And so we found a need in the country of Swaziland. And Swaziland, uh, actually, the name of the country changed about a year ago. And so the king changed the name of the country to the kingdom of Eswatini. And so now we've referred to it to the kingdom of Eswatini. But I'll refer to it as Swaziland just for the sake of this conversation. Uh, in Swaziland in 2012, we made a commitment to end the water crisis in the entire country. And there's a couple reasons we did that. First, nobody's ever ended the water crisis in an entire country. So we want to do something that's never been done before. Second, Swaziland, unfortunately, is probably best known as the country with the single highest density population of HIV AIDS positive people in the world. And if you have AIDS and you drink dirty water, drinking dirty water will actually kill you faster than AIDS will. And so the, you know, the ability to combat two issues at once was something that we really wanted to take on. Uh, and then third, probably the biggest reason why we wanted to end the water crisis in an entire country, and that country being Swaziland, was we believe without a doubt that clean water impacts so many aspects of daily life and development. And in that belief, we wanted to show the world that if we can end the water crisis in an entire country, look at how education rates can increase. Look at how economic opportunity can increase. Look at health and sanitation rates and how they can increase. Look at food security and how it increases. We wanted to you know, really get people all over the world uh, knowing and understanding that if we can invest in water first, 
then we can start to invest in other aspects of life and development and we can eventually end poverty as we know it but we need to invest in water first and so we chose swaziland because it was a country where we felt like we could realistically end the water crisis in a realistic amount of time and it's a smaller country has about 1.4 million people and so we're aggressively trying to reach that goal of ending the water crisis in swaziland and along the way we're taking data points so we can create a case study out of our work in that country so we can show people once we're done all over the world you know, and big players in the space, whether that's, you know, the World Bank or people like the Gates Foundation. Hey, if you invest in water first, look at how other aspects of life and development change. We need to go and end the water crisis as fast as possible so that we can end poverty as we know it. Amazing. That's absolutely incredible. And I know that some pro- nonprofits typically like spread their resources out to multiple regions that need help. But I really love how you guys are dedicating yourself to this one particular region and just aggressively, like you said, fighting to end the water crisis. And back to what the Thirst Project is doing, I would love to talk to you about Road Warriors because I love the concept. Um, and can you explain to us exactly what a Road Warrior is and how they help uh, the Thirst Project and its mission? Absolutely, man. The Road Warriors are are just, they're, they're such a big part of the heart and soul of our organization. So a Road Warrior is an intern with Thirst Project, but it's an intern that is Uh, given one main responsibility and that responsibility is they come out to LA, they travel the country and they come out to LA and they are trained to be speakers and ambassadors for Thirst Project. And then they travel the country and they speak to middle schools, high schools, colleges about the global water crisis. They build relationships with these students and they challenge these students to help us end it in creative ways. And so Road Warriors drive from LA to different regions around the United States. They stay in homestays. So they'll stay at some of our closest donors or supporters houses so we can cut cost. And then they will wake up every morning and they'll speak at a school, two schools, three schools a day and working with students. And for most of these students, for the first time, they're hearing about the water crisis in depth from these road warriors. And then the road warriors are tasked with building these relationships with these young people so they can help build out campaigns, give them resources, materials, ideas to help us solve the water crisis. So raising money to build water projects and our road warriors are all students. And so we really value this peer-to-peer education. So imagine you're a high school student, right? And Audrey, you were one of our students, so you probably felt this or hopefully felt this. And you know, you see a Thirst Project speaker come into your school who's not that much older than you, who dresses the same way that you do, who talks the same way that you do, and they are passionate and they are energized and they're enthusiastic about global issues and they're challenging you as a peer to help solve the global water crisis. We've seen just an incredible response from young people who really not only enjoy, but get a lot out of a road warrior presentation because it's somebody who's similar in age, who's similar in interest, and who's willing to put themselves out there to help solve global issues. So the road warriors right now are on the road. We have uh, 12 road warriors on the road, uh, six teams of two people, and they're traveling the country, living a run and gun lifestyle, uh, doing as much as possible to get in front of as many people as possible to end the global water crisis. So it's an incredible program. And that's actually how I started at Thirst Project. That was my internship. I was a road warrior. I remember seeing you for the very first time on the stage at Icon and me like, oh my God, he's so cool. And just hearing you talk about the Thirst Project and the water crisis again, that was really the first time I had heard about it. And I say that as a native Cameroonian, I was born in a country that isn't the most developed and we face not only issues of water security, but also hunger and poverty. So really hearing in depth about like the large scale um, effect of the water crisis was just phenomenal and really like 
reshaped my thinking. I remember running for international president. I reached out to you back then about how Key Club International and the Thirst Project can really reshape our relationship to like create new programs and new ways for our members to think about service and water safety. And I wanted to talk to you about the curriculum that the Road Warriors are handling with their road trips. How do you guys go about speaking to young people and catalyzing them to really dedicate themselves to serving and ending the water crisis? Yeah, no, it's a great question. Uh, you know, there's a couple of things that we have found in 10 years uh, of our existence that are really effective in terms of how we can communicate the wa global water crisis to students. Uh, a couple of things is, uh, first, everything that we do, we try and organize our messaging, our marketing materials, what we put out on our website, every speech in a three-step uh, prong process. So problem, solution, call to action. The problem, the global water crisis, the fact that hundreds of millions of people don't have access to clean water. The solution, you, students. Students are the solution. Students can help us end the global water crisis. And then a call to action. So you can do something today to help us end it, whether it's donate, whether it's start a club, whether it's, oh, you can invite us to come and speak at your school next year in front of a full school assembly. You know, we give students different calls to action so they can actually do something to help us in the water crisis. So the problem solution call to action, that's how all of our presentations are structured. That's how the content, it's woven together. Now, in terms of like the water crisis specific stuff, what we found to be super effective is less of what students are getting on a day-to-day -day basis in their classes or in their lectures, right? Students all the time are opening their textbooks, especially in science classes, uh, in math classes, and they're going through numbers. They're talking about data. They're looking at reports. And it's not very personal, right? Uh, you know, some, some students are very analytical. And so I think they place a really high value on numbers and data. But for us at Thirst Project, what we found to be the most effective in terms of delivering content that highlights the message of the global water crisis, it's through storytelling. And so if you were to sit in on a Thirst Project presentation, the first 10 minutes would be five minutes of personal introduction of the speaker, another five minutes of high level overview of the water crisis, which is very data heavy, data driven. It's things like talking about how 600 million people don't have access to clean water or a thousand kids die every single day from waterborne diseases. But then after that, we probably spend 25 to 30 minutes telling stories. It's stories of real people who have been really affected by this very real water crisis. And so it's, hey, this is Gupa. He's six years old and he had schistosomiasis. Let me tell you his story. Or, hey, this is Gabsile and she lost her little sister to cholera. She also had cholera. Or, hey, this is Anne from Uganda. She walked nine miles to fetch water. And it's establishing that personal connection, letting students know, man, there are people all over the world that are very similar to you. Right? They're students just like you. They like the same music. They play the same sports. But their day-to-day -day life is very, very different. And they're, being, they're impacted by the global water crisis. And uh, allow us to tell you their story so you feel like you can connect with them, you can relate to them. But then also understand that you know, they are living in situations and circumstances that are very different than yours. And you can do something to help them today. And so storytelling is such a huge part of our work. And we're constantly telling stories. And we have found that students really respond to the stories that we're telling. 
Phenomenal. And again, that's what I love so much about you guys is that you're not just a nonprofit. You're not just the world's leading youth water organization. You guys are storytellers. And I think that's so impactful. And that's so beautiful. And I think to come to the conclusion of this wonderful conversation, could you tell us um, like a story or one of your favorite memories that you've encountered and that you've created during your work at the Thirst Project? Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, this is one I tell in a lot of my presentations. So a couple years ago, we were in the kingdom of Eswatini in the Matsinjini region, which is known to be one of you know, the poorest regions of Eswatini. And we were in this community called Ngamude. And I met a six-year-old named Gupa. And I spent about a week in Ngamude. So I got to spend about a week with Gupa, but he didn't speak hardly any English. Right? And so there was just a lot of nonverbal communication taking place. We would play games every single day. We would uh, you know, teach each other different things. He would teach me dances. I would teach him games from the U.S. Uh, you know, I would try and talk to him in English, and we'd make jokes. And about day three, his cousin came up to me, and uh, she started talking to me about Gupa and how I'm like, really enjoying spending time with him. And then she described a situation you know, when Gupa was four years old where one morning he woke up, and he had been drinking from a water source that was open and unprotected his entire life. And he woke up with stomach pains and then he started like, peeing blood. And he had this parasite called schistosomiasis. And it's a parasite that affects hundreds of millions of people each year. And it's incredibly painful. And when she's telling me this story, I'm like, man, I can't imagine like Goopa. You know, this fun, energetic, full of life six-year-old you know, being impacted by something like schistosomiasis, something that's so serious uh, that uh, it, it can you know, cause you to urinate blood, which is something I don't think any of us could really ever imagine, or uh, you know, it could cause you to have stomach pains for days, if not weeks. And so she's telling me this story, and I'm just looking at Gupa in a completely different way. Uh, and we were lucky enough to be in Imgamude uh, for the reason of building a water project. So we eventually built a water project for Imgamude, for Gupa, his family, and his community. But just hearing that story after I'd spent quality time with this awesome, like full of life, cute little kid, it's a sobering moment. Um, and that's probably one of my favorite stories just to talk about Gupa, our relationship, but uh, then the reality of the water crisis in his life as a four-year-old. Amazing, amazing. And again, I love the Thirst Project. I love the work you guys are doing, not only because you guys are fighting a very serious crisis that our world is facing, but because you guys are forming friendships and relationships and telling incredible stories that have not only impacted me, but thousands and thousands of other students and young activists and young people. So thank you so much, Evan, for taking the time out of your very busy schedule and day to come and speak with me. I've had a lovely time speaking with you. Yeah, Audrey, you're amazing. Yeah, you are one of our student leaders and we appreciate you in so many ways. And yeah, it's through students like you that we will see real tangible change in the world. So thanks so much. We appreciate you. Amazing. Have a great day. Awesome. You too.